From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. And we'll start right out of the gates by saying that BC's budget had a number of things, including trying to bring families back into the housing mix. There's a new tax that is aimed at home flippers or speculators saying that if you try to flip your house within two years of the purchase, you are going to have to pay. To talk more about this, Tony Gioventu, Executive Director with the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. Tony, good afternoon. Well, let's get right into this. When you heard about this, obviously not new news, but at the same time, progress. What are your thoughts on this? Well, from a perspective of housing, there isn't one single item I think that's going to change or transform our housing market into more availability, more affordability. It's a long list of issues. And, you know, I think we've gone 15, 20 years to get to this point to turn around. So it's going to be a number of issues. But from a Strata Corporation's perspective, this is actually a positive decision. Walk me through one positive in particular that you think will be immediate. I mean, this is going to be a a process, obviously, as everybody adjusts to try and make ends meet. But what's one thing that stood out to you? Well, if it actually slows down transactions um, because investors are going to try and want to get the maximum benefit without having to pay a capital gain on it, it will stop some of the flips that we've seen quite frequently within strata communities where an investor has basically come in and within three to six months, they have got their unit most often without any authorization from the strata, causing often structural damages, causing damages to the infrastructure of the plumbing and the electrical systems. They sell them, they're gone, and then the strata corporation is left with a myriad of problems. And the subsequent buyers are unsuspecting as well. There's no shortage of these type of complaints, either in the courts or through the civil resolution tribunal. And that, if this is one of the positive effects that spins out of this, this would be a good thing for strata corporations. But if somebody was going to, Tony, make adjustments to their home, whether they flip it in six months or in two years, I mean, obviously the work that's being done that hasn't been approved by the strata is still in place, regardless of how quickly that uh, property is sold, no? Yeah, but the difficulty with getting approvals within about a 90 to 120 day window to do all the things you want to do and then go get permits from the city um, to do those approvals, it, it just takes too long. So what ends up happening is the person who's intent on flipping will come in and they will not get approval from the corporation. They won't get permits from the city and it will result in a number of problems. If, if the two-year window results in a bit of a time taken to be able to do renovations and upgrades and things effectively so that the um, strata corporation and the city can be involved and it's a good renovation, um, that would be a really great benefit out of this. Um, the other side of this is I think there's a bit of confusion about pre-sales, that pre-sales will be affected by this, and they won't. Um, a pre-sale is just simply an agreement to purchase a unit when the building is ready for the transactions to occur. So most investors who purchase pre-sales, either one units or in some cases five, 25 or 50 units, may actually flip those before those buildings are ready. Um, and it's not going to be um, a flipping tax because they've actually not 
um, changed over a transaction. They've just simply transferred contracts. So between 2020 and 2022, an estimated 7% of residential house sales were resold within two years here in British Columbia. Tony, if I'm just speaking from the hip here, mm. would the tax be worth it for people to still take the chance? Like, I'm not sure what the actual number is, but the reality is, is prices are soaring so fast that I wonder if this tax can actually, people just say, fine, I'll just charge a little bit more to offset that tax. Do you see people willing to roll the dice on that? Yeah, I do. And and, and you really do. And and really, I think this is where investors and people who are flipping are going to make adjustments. Is it, they're going to evaluate, is it really worth it? But we have a fairly aging housing stock, whether they're detached homes, bareland stratas, townhouses, apartments, high rises. And there are really a significant number of good opportunities for investors to go in renovate the units and probably turn around um, a profit in a short period of time, especially if we go back into a rising market where the prices continue to rise, we have a shortage of inventory and there's pressure. So, you know, the 20% tax might not actually make a difference. But what it is going to do is it's going to create a reporting process, which I think is going to provide some scrutiny and some much-needed data for the province as well as they go forward. Yeah, and I was going to say, when you come back to the strata, i got to imagine that that would help them as well in in, in all of this. Uh, one thing that I did want to say, because people are saying, well, wait a second, what if I, you know, somebody dies in my family or I get a job abroad? This tax will not affect them if they do sell within two years, but you have to qualify, correct? That's right. But the quality, you know, we'll see all of the terms of the qualification process, but we have other other types of circumstances like this within policy um, that allow for early exiting of policy conditions. Um, even the vacant homes tax, if you're living in one spot and working in the city, but you have specific conditions, um, the regulators have been incredibly reasonable about this. They're, they're not looking to penalize people who are functioning well within the industry. I think it's, I think it's the investor pressure that is causing an affordability issue that they're trying to quell. It's great insight. I appreciate you helping me kick off this show with a lot of good information. Tony, let's talk again. You bet. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. Thank you as well. You know, the U.S. has noticed that migration to its country isn't just coming from the South, but also from Canada as record number of applications for visitors' visas seem to be bogging down the consulate. Some people are waiting upwards of, get this, two years to get processed. To speak more about some of the challenges Canadians and travellers are facing heading south, Len Saunders, immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. How are you? I am well. Um, this story kind of got me by surprise. I, I was I was thinking, well, maybe it's just a COVID backlog as opposed to a government crackdown. But why are uh, Canadians looking to go south finding these wait times that are, again, just gobsmackingly long? Well, it's not actually Canadians. It's landed immigrants landed or other immigrants, yes. immigrants to Canada who have to get a visa. I'm a Canadian. I don't know if you know that. But most Canadians, when they arrive at the U.S. border, they just show their passport and they're good to go. But almost all other nationalities, Indians, Chinese, uh, Filipinos, when you come to Canada, if you want to come down and go grocery shopping in Bellingham or gas up your car or go on vacation to Hawaii, you have to get a visa from the U.S. consulate. Prior to COVID, the average wait time was always you know, a couple of weeks to a couple of months, which wasn't too bad. And then when COVID happened, they they shut down the consulates for a couple of years unless it was essential or an emergency. 
So when they reopened two or three years ago, everybody expected, you know, the backlogs to be for a while and then go down. And it's interesting, they just haven't. So I was at an immigration law conference in Seattle in October, and they happened to have the consul general from the Vancouver consulate there. And so all of the lawyers like me were saying to him, why are these backlogs so, like two, two and a half years, they're ridiculous. And he said that they are working in Vancouver at maximum capacity. They've never issued so many visas before. But the problem is there's so many immigrants coming to Canada now that they just don't have the capacity to deal with this influx of immigrants. Because if you're immigrating to Canada, especially to the lower mainland, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to see family and friends in the United States or check out Disneyland or, you know, do some shopping. And it shocks me that the consulate doesn't, you know, have some kind of game plan to get this weight down. It's, it's you know, something that you would think the Americans would want landed immigrants in Canada or Canadian residents to come down here and spend their money, but there seems to be no concern about that. Len, that's for people that want to do it, you know, by the up and up, but I was um, actually see. I think it was listening to a report just yesterday that at the U.S.-Mexico border, there were more Chinese citizens that had been stopped by border patrols than Mexicans, which was, a, a, to me, a really surprising account. Is this Chinese effort to get into the U.S. coming through uh, Canada as well? Oh, absolutely. So, my practice is in Blaine. I go to the Peace Arch Park frequently, and the Border Patrol agents tell me it's a constant flow of other nationalities other than Canadians who use Canada as a stopping-off place, and then they arrive at the border seeking asylum. So it is, I think, through the news, a lot of foreigners are hearing that the Americans are welcoming asylum seekers and it's a steady flow. I get calls every day from people saying that their relative was picked up, uh, entering into Blaine illegally. They're now down in the detention center. I don't do that kind of work, so I refer to lawyers down in the Seattle area. But I've, I've been in Blaine doing this for over 20 years. I've never seen so many illegals entering the United States on the, on the northern border. And it's happening the other way around. I'll see people who take cabs to the Peace Arch Park with suitcases, and they end up walking onto Zero Avenue into Canada. It seems like there's a lack of security on who's actually entering Canada. And I speak to the Border Patrol agents, and they say they, they radio the RCMP. Sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't. They hop into cabs, and they end up where you are. <laughs> Well, hopefully they're not in the 21st floor in downtown Vancouver getting ready to broadcast a show. But I hear what you're saying, Len. Len, how vulnerable is the Canadian border? I mean, we hear everybody's talking about this U.S.-Mexico border. Get it, you know, build us a wall, da 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 But for me, and you mentioned Zero Avenue, but I, I think of the province as a whole. Uh, is it a wide open space? Like, do people from abroad look at this and say, boy, this is just a, a, a free way in? Well, I think it's easier for people overseas to go to Mexico because a lot of times people don't need visas to go to Mexico, whereas you have to get a Canadian visa, right? It's, it's a lot harder to get into Canada to enter the United States illegally than it is on the southern border because it's not just Mexico. You can fly into you know, Central America, South America, and then enter the U.S. illegally. So I don't think you're ever going to see the amount. Like in the last three years under Biden, I've been told there's 7 million you know, illegals or undocumented people entering the U.S. on the southern border. 
that's a huge amount. You're never going to see those kind of numbers on the northern border, but it's happening. I find it mind-boggling right now that it's just from all points. And, uh, you know, I thought for sure when I heard that there were more Chinese people uh, coming in from the Mexican border than actual Mexicans themselves, that this might have had something to do with what's going on in China and maybe the ripple effect before what seems to be maybe a larger global situation. But let's focus here on this side. Um, obviously, there are certain standards that you got to go through to cross the border. This one kind of caught my eye, and, and Len, I appreciate you indulging me on this one. Prince Harry and his admissions that he took drugs. Is this going to be a problem for him staying in the United States for the simple fact that he documented something in a memoir, and now all of a sudden uh, people with the Department of Homeland Security are looking into this? Well, it should be, and I've represented Ross Rebliati, who is an Olympic you know, gold medal snowboarder, been all over the news. He admitted on the Jay Leno show that he'd smoked marijuana. He has a lifetime bar. How is Prince Harry any similar or any different? I, I was actually asked by the group that is trying to get Prince Harry's records to do a declaration, kind of an opinion on it. And I said to them, you know, your typical Canadian who admits at the border or in some memoir or even, you know, the former premier or not Premier, the mayor of Toronto, Rob Ford, he admitted that he'd used you know, cocaine and other legal substances. He was denied entry to the United States before he passed away. So how can Prince Harry freely go back and forth? And recently he's been up in Vancouver two or three times. I can only imagine when he goes to the U.S. border, none of those officers are either asking him if he's used drugs before or, or want to ask him. How is he any different than the typical Canadian who's admitted in the past to drug use? And the U.S. government has done an about-face. They're saying, oh, well, he's admitted in his book, but it may not be truthful. He may be embellishing. Well, how is that any different than Ross Rebliati? It's, just, it's such a double standard. I'm dying to see his immigration records, what his status is, whether he's come in on a diplomatic passport as part of the royal family, maybe like an O visa alien of extraordinary, extraordinary ability, or maybe he got a green card like me through Meghan Markle, his spouse. But either way, he would have lied on one of the forms in order to get his green card or his status, if it's a non-immigrant status, because they ask you when you immigrate to this country, have you ever used a controlled substance? He said he's used it multiple times, you know, I think on the Royal you know, Windsor Palace, he's used it there. So I'll be interested to see what the judge rules in this case from Friday. Yeah, it's very interesting. Len, thank you for the in-depth analysis on that. I, I'm so glad. I was a little nervous asking you the question. I don't want to sound too much like the paparazzi, but uh, you gave me a lot of meat on the bone, and I appreciate you doing this. Len, always great to have you on. Let's do this again. Have a good day, Rob. Nice to chat to you. Do you feel comfortable? Let's say something happened with sexual mix misconduct, whether it was for you or somebody else in your office and you were witness to it. Do you feel comfortable reporting it? There's a survey that came out a little while back that said there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable, and especially women, uh, those from our First Nations community are disabled. They, are, uh, they skew very high when it comes to the fear and the stigma and the judgment and the trust when it comes to reporting sexual misconduct in the workplace. Talk a little bit more about this is Angela Marie McDougall. She's the executive director of the Battered Women's Support Services. Kind enough to join me this afternoon. Angela, good afternoon. 
Hi, Rob. Well, yeah, you know, it's such a delicate subject, but the reality mm-hmm. is, is the numbers are just right there, smack in your mm-hmm. face. And Alberta and British Columbia are the two provinces mm-hmm. at the top of this report for those mm-hmm. uh, provinces that deal with sexual misconduct the most. What are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good, really good point, Rob. And the question about are we do, what are we doing wrong? What we're talking about here is reporting and uh, self-reports can be a good thing. It can uh, be a recognition that we've created a culture uh, that is becoming more um, kind of uh, facilitates the ability for people to come forward and to share their experiences rather than keeping them quiet. Uh, because we know that sexual harassment has been with us. Uh, sexual harassment in the workplace has been with us uh, for you know decades, maybe centuries and that it's even built into the way that um, even labor laws and uh, particularly for women, you know, around uh, being able to um, be pregnant, um, many things that have been built into the disadvantages around uh, gender and age. And so when we have reports, I think it's highlighting that we have uh, perhaps that we have created a, um, the environment where people can make reports. And that means that B, B, um, BC, with the highest self-reports, uh, is uh, coming a long way to recognizing how endemic this problem is. Hmm. It's a really interesting way to look at it. I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, this StatsCan report from a little while back said there were two things that caught my surprise, that one out of three women uh, didn't know how to identify what workplace sexual harassment was, and then one out of three women didn't know how to report workplace sexual harassment or sexual assault. Uh, that number, to me, seems a little jarring. Well, you know, it tells us just how how sort of the many behaviors that are been normalized for a really long time, uh, how much sexual harassment has just been a part of the everyday uh, relationships of people, whether it's, you know, in public, whether it's in private, whether it's in the workplace. Uh, it tells us how normalized these behaviors uh, are. I mean, I even think about watching shows, you know, television shows from the 70s and how much sexual harassment was just, you know, there all, you know, as a part of the show and it's just expected. So because it's been normalized, many of us don't necessarily have that definition of what, what is sexual harassment? What are we talking about? What are the behaviors that are examples of sexual harassment? And so this is always a good time for us to get aware of that because, again, a lot of this stuff has been normalized. We've been trying, for, Rob, for a long time, and I think this report is telling us that we're getting better at it, to make visible just how um, routine sexual harassment has been in the workplace. Uh, even that, you know, the notion of the Girl Friday. And uh, I mean, there's so many things that we could look at the various examples that have that have been baked into the employment relationship. And it goes back to the idea when we're talking about women specifically, that for so long, women's public life was not to be in the workplace. Women's lives were primarily in the home. So entering into the public realm of a workplace then created a whole other layer of dynamics there and sexual harassment was uh, a big part of that because, uh, you know, Rob, you know, we haven't had gender um, equity. Uh, we're still working at that and, you know, around, um, you know, wages, around the right to, you know, childcare. There's a bunch of different things. So, sexual harassment is the last uh, indication of how safe empo- workplaces are. And so it doesn't surprise me that we have a portion of the population that doesn't necessarily know the, the definition because it's so normalized.
Angela Marie McDougall is the executive director of Battered Women's Support Services, joining us here on The Jill Bennett Show. Um, I'm going to speak from personal experience. It took me a while to find my voice as a man. It took me a while to be able Mm. to stand up for myself when it came to the industry that I work in. And Mm. I will say this. I think of my daughter, for example, and it takes a while for somebody to go into the workplace and feel confident Mm. that they can have their say. What can parents do or what can supporters around these children do uh, to prepare them early for the challenges that they may face so that they can a identify it early and b don't fall victim to it because they don't feel that they have a voice so important uh so important because yeah i've talked about women but men also experience uh sexual harassment in the workplace and other kinds of things Uh, i think what first and foremost we can recognize that um uh that to gain awareness of the definition we're tweeting right now through uh through x through twitter uh, the de- some definitions and also, uh, you know, how to prevent examples of sexual harassment, how to prevent. Uh, but it, ultimately, Rob, uh, it does require uh, communication. It does require making that visible and supporting people to stand in their power and use their voice. As you described, we each have our own journey toward that, especially as young people. And I think as adults, we can make visible. I mean, probably children, youth have already had experiences of sexual harassment, just living in the world. So what that means for the workplace, uh, we can start to talk about that. I think it's really important that every workplace, uh, that every worker uh, is, you know, takes some time to learn if their, if their workplace has a sexual harassment policy, who are the, the people in the workplace that are designated for, um, you know, to take those reports. And I, you know, we know that that's not always the case in many workplaces, and it could be dangerous to make that uh, to go um, public, which is also means that supervisors also need to be prepared, owners of businesses, supervisors, that we really are required to act if we receive a complaint, or we have to be aware of potential sexual harassment in a workplace. So, you know, it is a responsibility for everybody in society. And so when these kind of uh, research comes out and gives us the prevalence of sexual harassment. It's a reminder for us to look, you know, literally in our workplaces uh, and, uh, you know, in our businesses and to be able to, uh, you know, have a report card. How are we doing to have a healthy environment? And as with any, you know, supporting our youth and, uh, into, you know, and young people to, into the workforce, uh, um, you know, we also need to be prepared to walk beside them if they need assistance in making reports, because sometimes the benefit of an advocate uh, makes all the difference. Angela, thank you for the time and the insight. Second to none. Let's talk again. Thank you, Rob, really, for covering this today. Well, there is no doubt about it. When it comes to the airline industry here in Canada, I know, I know, I know. It's interesting. We've been covering Lynx Air for the last couple of days. Obviously, the Calgary-based airline is now no longer. Yesterday, uh, right around midnight, was their final soiree. There is no more Lynx Air as of today. So you would think that, well, everybody will just take it easy and what have you. But nope, WestJet coming out and... Flair coming out with increases, not to their actual fee for the ticket, but for the baggage and all the other accoutrement, if you will. To talk a little bit more about this, because I know there's a lot of meat on this bone, Carl Morris, an associate professor at McGill University who studies this industry. Carl, good afternoon. 
Always a pleasure. Well, let's get into this because the reality is, as you would think, there'd be a little bit of a moratorium before another airline says we're going to increase something. That, of course, in the wake of Lynx Air. But what do you make of these baggage fees from WestJet and this additional, um, you know, dollar in pocket from Flair as well? Well, something where you look at it, and I sat in on their um, uh, annual and quarterly results. One of the big things of growth of, of airlines is uh, ancillary fees. So something where people are looking for a low-cost fare, and they get that. But then what has happened in the last number of years now is that they charge you for a meal. They charge you for bringing luggage. They charge you for an aisle seat. And they're looking for, once we've got you on the plane, how do we get more money from you because it helps our profitability? So this has been a big growth area for a number of years now. Uh, and it's something where I flew uh, – uh, Air Transat last week from Miami is doing a McGill event down there, and it was a low co- ultra low cost. So there's no business class, there's no Wi-Fi. I asked for ice; they don't have ice for my water. I asked for a beer, and the guy I think knew at that point that I like cold things, and he <laughs> touched my hand with it. It's a warm beer, so I said, "No, that's right. I, I'm not that worried about it." When we got to Montreal, we actually had to go and wait and get on buses, a bus to take us to the terminal. And this is all around saving costs and making it as cheap as possible. Now, with Air Canada and WestJet, uh, they may get you in on low-cost fares. You're sitting in the back. You're not up in business class. But the ancillary fees are a way that we're willing to pay, and it's our free choice, that are very profitable for the airline. So it's an area of growth um, that they really are enjoying to maintain their profitability in the face of higher oil prices, therefore higher aviation fuel prices, uh, a challenging economic environment, inflation, that they have to pay higher wages and they have to pay more for food and so on, like we all do. So it's something where, given the times they're in, this is a nice way of making money from people that is not too upsetting. You know, one thing that I thought from a marketing perspective is what would a consumer rather have? $200 flight, but $100 in fees or a $300 flight, but the quote free baggage and no fees. I mean, it's both the same amount of money, but it's just the optic that makes you feel one makes me feel like I'm getting fleeced. The other one makes me feel like, yeah, the, the, the flight's a little more expensive, but boy, I'm getting something for free. Well, it's something that's old school. And that was the way it was in the past. I'm old enough to remember when you get a free meal on the plane, uh, you'd get, you know, maybe a drink even for free, and you get all sorts of things. What A model that evolved a number of years ago saying, look, we're going to go for low cost. The other stuff is up to you. So I know people, like I take a water bottle to the airport and get water from the water fountain for free. I might bring meal food with me that I buy, you know, make it home or get it home and take it on the plane. So I don't have to worry about paying those high fees for their meals. So if I think about it, I can be a very frugal flyer. And the experienced flyers probably do that. But, you know, we don't travel that much. You probably, you're probably you not as aware of this, and so you don't think these things throughout. But I know very experienced travelers. So I, I, I don't take any uh, – I only take carry-on tra- uh, luggage. I'm taking 50 students from uh, McGill to Cairo and Morocco this Friday. So I'll probably, I'll, I'll probably take luggage below because I'm gone for 12 days. But that's the only trip of the year I don't take only carry-on luggage because it saves me time and energy and saves me money. So that's because I'm a reasonably you know, experienced traveler. I look for ways of saving money when it's coming out of my own pocket. 
Carl Morris, an associate professor at McGill University who takes on this industry. Carl, do you think the government can at one point say, okay, we've, and I think I know the answer to this question. Do you think they could come in with a standardized template that everybody's got to follow? Um, or is that just not in the cards because everybody's got to run it their own way? Ain't going to happen in our lifetime. Now, there's some standard things like, you know, you got to pay GST, PST, you got to pay the landing fees at airports. So there's some things which are in common, but it's up to you whether you want to sit in business class, spend a stunning amount of money, but then be in a flat bed as you fly across the Atlantic and you get to uh, Europe in better shape. And from a business viewpoint, I might be willing to pay that because that person will negotiate better on behalf of the company. So there's times that it is legitimate to pay less or more, but I think the government's going to be hands-off and let people decide what they want. It may catch the less sophisticated traveler, but if you travel a fair bit, and again, we're talking about it today, so even people who don't travel much can give it some thought and say, hey, I'll not buy any drinks at the airport, and I'll not buy any food, I'll not take luggage I've got to pay extra for, that I'll save this money, because that's the point, is that I can only travel if I do it inexpensively. One of the things that I've always been concerned with, and actually it was an article that I just came across that you were a part of, was, sure, I can see the fares up front, so I can compare between Flair and Air Canada and WestJet and what have you, but the one thing that I can't compare are those secondary charges, which really is kind of a deal breaker or a game changer for me in the fact that I can see a portion of what I'm being charged, but I can't see the whole package. Well, it's something where you can Google it and ask you know, people that fly with the airline and get a sense for it. But I think it's a matter of just um, keeping your wallet closed, take some water with you, and arrive maybe hungry. But that's all right, at least you're in Hawaii. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, you know what? In its simplest terms, that's probably the way that you got to look at it if you're trying to save some money. Carl, before I let you go, just one last question. You see the la- the, the changing landscape of the airline industry here in Canada. Um, should we fear that maybe another carrier is next up on the chopping block, or do you feel that maybe that was the one sacrificial lamb in Lynx Air? Do you see other airlines maybe uh, on the ropes as well? I think there will be, and we've seen dozens of airlines come and go in my lifetime, On the positive side, there will be some entrepreneur that will start an airline that will compete, and some will be successful, like WestJet, uh, Transat, and so on. Others will fail. So in Canada, we have a long history of uh, airlines that come and go, but there are always some optimist who comes out there and starts an airline. So I think we'll see some started in the next year or two as other ones disappear. There have been many, haven't there? I I was just thinking of Canadian as one, as you mentioned that. And uh, yeah, obviously no more. Thank you for the time. I always appreciate discussions like this, especially with great insight like that. Carl, please, let's speak again. Look forward to it. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.